from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read together Lord's Day 15. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes. Thereby I'm assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, during this past week, I read through one of the most famous sermons ever preached. It was written by Jonathan Edwards and is titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This sermon was preached in 1741 during the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening was a series of religious revivals that occurred in the American colonies during the 1730s and 40s. Before this revival, the godliness and devotion of many had declined. Many who had formerly been Christians had wandered from the faith in Jesus Christ. Yet through the preaching of George Whitefield, Jonathan Edwards, and others, a great revival took place, and many committed their hearts and their lives to the Lord. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is a sermon based on Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. There the Lord says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Jonathan Edwards focused on the idea that their foot shall slip in due time. The main idea of the sermon is that the ungodly will slip and fall and come under God's severe wrath at a time when they're not expecting it. Much of this sermon is about the terrors of hell. Edward says that God has the power to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. He says that they deserve to be cast into hell. The wicked are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. He describes hell as that world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone, the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. He speaks of how hell's wide gaping mouth is open and ready to receive the ungodly. 
He compares God's wrath to great waters dammed up, piling higher and higher until they're released and sinners are swept away. With many other words, Edward speaks about the severity of God's wrath and about the fierceness of God's anger against unrepentant sinners. He concludes his sermon with a call to repentance. He said, Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. Now, beloved, all this talk about the wrath of God and the fierceness of his judgment makes us rather uncomfortable. Hell is not something we often speak about or consider. Yet perhaps we should. The Bible is very clear about the fact that after this life, each one of us will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If we are not in Christ, if we do not by faith share in the blessings of salvation he has earned for us, we will certainly be condemned and cast into hell. Thus we need to know how we can escape God's righteous judgment and share in the salvation Christ has earned for us. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. By his great suffering, Christ has saved us from hell. We'll consider how by Christ's suffering he has saved us and how because of Christ's suffering we are to live for him. In many Christian churches, there is much emphasis on the love of God. In and of itself, that's not a bad thing. Preachers are messengers of the good news of the gospel. We're called to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. To speak of how Jesus came to save us. Yet it's easy to distort the biblical message if you only ever speak about the love of God. God is both merciful and just. There are always two sides to God's interaction with man. When God comes into contact with man, he brings salvation and judgment. It's comforting for people if preachers only ever speak about God's love and about how Jesus saves. But from what does Jesus save us? And why is such salvation necessary? If you don't answer those questions, you cheapen the grace of God. Christ's suffering and death don't mean much if we don't understand why they were needed. We will not worship God with reverence and awe and give him the glory due to his name 
unless we truly understand what Jesus has done for us. To understand this, we need to go back to the beginning, to when this world was first created. God made mankind good. We lived in a perfect world. We were able to live in intimate fellowship with God and in perfect communion together. There was no sin, pain, suffering, or death. Yet God gave our first parents a probationary command to test and see if they would love and serve him freely from the heart. God did not want to be served by robots. He wanted mankind to freely choose to love and to serve him. God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil into the Garden of Eden. He gave Adam and Eve a garden full of trees from which they were allowed to eat. But he said, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We know what happened. Satan came and tempted our first parents, and they heeded his voice. Contrary to the command of God, they ate from the forbidden tree. Through that action, they brought sin and death into the world. They came under the judgment of God. They deserved eternal condemnation to suffer the torments of hell forevermore. Is there a solution to the judgment of God? A way out of the sin and misery in which man had plunged himself? Yes. God sought out Adam and Eve while they, were, while they hid, cowering in fear because of what they had done. He promised that he would put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He promised the coming Messiah, through whom he would save his people from their sins and from the judgment and condemnation we deserved because of our sins. Lord's Day 15 deals with this. It focuses on the suffering of Jesus Christ. It explains not only how much Jesus Christ suffered, but also why this was necessary. Question 37 asks, What do you confess when you say that he suffered? The answer begins, During all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Christ's whole life was a life of suffering. It began with his conception and birth. To come into this world, Christ had to leave behind the glory, the majesty, the riches, and the power he had in heaven. Philippians 2 says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Instead of being king of the universe, he came into the sinful world as a little baby, born in poverty in a stable near Bethlehem. When Jesus began his public ministry, he led a worship service in the synagogue in Nazareth. 
He read from the scroll of Isaiah about how the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and had anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. And then he told the people, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of Jesus and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. But they did not believe in him because they thought he was Joseph's son. When Jesus made it clear that no prophet is accepted in his hometown and illustrated the point with some scriptural examples, the people got so mad they tried to kill him by throwing him off the cliff on which their town was built. Again and again, through his public ministry, Jesus was rejected by his own people. The Apostle John writes in John 1, verse 11, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. When Jesus reached out to the outcasts of society, the people called him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The religious leaders repeatedly questioned Jesus, trying to trap him in his words. Jesus' teaching caused a division among the people. Many said, he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? At times, he even tried to stone Jesus to death. Try to imagine the suffering this would have caused the Lord Jesus. He had come to save his people. His purpose in becoming man was to offer his life as a sacrifice on the cross, to pay for his people's sins. And yet the very people he came to save refused to believe in him. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Beloved, we have contributed to the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our catechism makes the point that Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. That includes your sins and mine. 1 Peter 2, 24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And that by his wounds you have been healed. It's a humbling thought to consider that it's not just the people of Jesus' day who contributed to his suffering. All the sinful things we said and did in this past week were sins that Jesus suffered for on the cross. Jesus' suffering intensified at the end of his life. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his own disciples, who sold him out for 30 shekels of silver. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the rest of his disciples deserted him. These men had been with Jesus for more than three years. And yet in his hour of need, 
they fled. Later, Peter followed him to the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus was being judged. He denied Jesus three times, swearing he did not even know him. Again, beloved, we need to recognize that we are not so different from Jesus' followers who betrayed and forsook and denied him. Don't we often do the same thing in our lives? How often don't we remain silent when others blaspheme God's holy name? Or when there's an opportunity to share our faith? Aren't we often afraid to confess Christ before friends and workmates? Don't we do what we can to try avoid suffering ridicule or discrimination because of our faith? We don't always seek to do God's will, to obey His commands. At times we just go ahead and do what we want to do, even though we know it's wrong. There are times when we lie, we cheat, we steal, we lust. We have hearts filled with anger. We buy stuff we don't need, being poor stewards, wasting the money God has given us. We watch TV, surf the internet, and game, wasting hours and hours of time while neglecting Bible study, homework, family time, and visiting those in need. Beloved, do we still recognize that Christ suffered for each of our sins? Does it hurt you to know that your sins caused Christ to suffer and die? The good news of the gospel is that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, Christ has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Christ bore God's wrath for our sins. He suffered the punishment we deserved for all the sins we've ever done. We know that our sins pile up fast, that we've incurred a great debt with God. Christ paid the price we could not pay. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's through his suffering and death as the atoning sacrifice for our sins that Christ has reconciled us, that he's restored us in our relationship with God. Our catechism emphasizes that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate as judge. We need to recognize that Jesus did not die at the hands of the mob. Jesus was tried in a public court. Pontius Pilate was the presiding judge. 
It's important to note this, for all the governing authorities have been instituted by God. They act on His behalf. Everything Pilate said and did, he ultimately did on behalf of the Lord. There are two noteworthy things about what Pilate did during Jesus' trial. The first is that Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. He repeated that three times. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, that he had not committed any crime worthy of death. The second noteworthy thing is that Pilate condemned Jesus to death by crucifixion. Why is this important for us? Our catechism explains that though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the judgment of God that was to fall on us. Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Our comfort is that by suffering the judgment of God for us, Christ has freed us from everlasting condemnation. Christ's sufferings climaxed with his crucifixion. To be crucified means to be nailed to a cross. This was a Roman form of punishment. It was reserved for those guilty of treason or of other particularly heinous crimes. The Romans used it as a form of deterrent to warn others not to commit the same kind of crimes if they didn't want to die in this manner. Crucifixion was considered the worst kind of death a man could die. Seven-inch spikes would be driven through a person's wrists so the bones could support the body's weight. The feet were nailed to the upright part of the cross. A person hanging would suffer the loss of blood and severe dehydration. Many people who were crucified ultimately died of suffocation. The weight on their chest would cause difficulty breathing. They'd have to push up with their legs just to catch a breath of air. Once they got too tired or their legs were broken, they would not be able to breathe anymore and would soon die. Jesus suffered all that, beloved, for our sins. And yet that's not the worst thing about crucifixion. The law of God reveals something special about this kind of death. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says that a hanged man is cursed by God. The Jewish leaders incited the people to cry for Pilate to crucify Jesus. They figured that if Jesus was crucified, it would clearly show the people he could not be 
the Son of God. That is precisely what happened. God allowed his Son to come under his curse. Jesus needed to bear God's curse to deliver us from the curse which lay on us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took upon himself the curse we deserved. It's on the cross that Jesus suffered the deepest shame and the anguish of how. During the three hours of darkness, God gave Jesus over to Satan to suffer the torments of hell. Do you know what hell is like, beloved? Often our culture pictures hell as a giant lounge where people drink and they tell stories about their escapades on earth. The Bible gives us a very different picture of hell. Describes hell as a fiery furnace, as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It'll be a place of utter misery, where people will suffer everlasting torment of body and soul. They will suffer loneliness and isolation, being completely cut off from God, from any kind of wholesome relationship with others. That's why Dante, in The Inferno, envisaged, envisaged this sign chiseled above Hell's Gate. Abandon all hope, you who enter here. This, beloved, is what Christ has saved us from. All who believe in Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, will be saved from God's wrath, from God's condemnation, from hell itself. This brings us to our second point, and it will consider how, because of Christ's suffering, we are to live for him. Beloved, so far in this sermon, I hope you've gained at least some small appreciation for the terrible sufferings that Jesus underwent. I want to impress on you that Jesus suffered so much for you and for me. He suffered because of all your sins and mine. This should cause us a healthy revulsion of sin. Please consider the terrible consequences of your sins. Our God is a holy God. Holy means to be set apart from sin. Our sins are revolting to God. They incur his fierce wrath. Doesn't that make you feel bad? Does it cause sorrow and grief in your heart that you have caused 
Jesus Christ, so much pain, so much sorrow. Beloved, if it does, then repent of your sins. Grieve with heartfelt sorrow that you've offended God by them. Don't be indifferent about your sins. Hate them. Flee from them. Don't put yourself in situations where you are likely to sin. Now, some people think that they can serve God by simply avoiding sin. Nothing is further from the truth. There are two parts to true repentance. One part is a turning away from sin. The other part is a turning to God. We need to learn to know who our God is. To learn to know Him and love Him. We need to study the Bible. We need to meditate on all God's mighty deeds. Does this get sufficient time in your life, beloved? Do you start your day with God, reading from His Word and asking for His blessings? Do you consider what you say and do in the light of what God teaches you in His Word? Do you praise God during the day when you witness something beautiful or see His blessing in some aspect of your life? Do you participate in Bible study with other Christians so you can support and encourage each other and build one another up in the faith? Are you reading your Bible around the dinner table? And are you teaching your children to know and to love the Lord? Truly knowing God creates a bond of love with Him. And when you love God, you'll find it harder and harder to disappoint Him and to grieve Him with particular sins. And when you actually fall into sin, you won't like the distance that it creates between you and the Lord. It'll motivate you to repent and to seek God's favor once again. Through time, you'll build a close relationship, an intimate bond with your Father in heaven, where it becomes a joy and a delight for you to live according to the will of God in all good works. Beloved, not only do we offend God with our sins, many of our sins also affect other people. They cause hurt, suffering, and shame. They cause others to think negative thoughts, to say hurtful words, and to do bad things back at us. In their hurt and pain, people often strike back at those who insulted or offended against them. We see this in our relationships 
We repay insult with insult, evil with evil, cruelty with cruelty. It can become a downward spiral in our lives where relationships break down and are destroyed because we don't know how to break out to the negative cycles we're involved in. Christ gave us a different example to follow. We read about this in 1 Peter 2. Peter says that it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You see, beloved, when people hit Jesus, he didn't hit them back. When they insulted Jesus, he didn't insult them back. When they crucified Jesus and cast lots for his clothes, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. On the basis of this, Peter says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. You may be thinking, but that's not fair. Someone can insult me, hurt me, and cause me pain and sorrow, and I'm just supposed to take it? The Bible clearly teaches there are times when we need to confront sin in a brotherly manner. Yet Christ's suffering is meant to serve as a template for us. By not repaying insult with insult, evil with evil, hurt with hurt, we can break the negative cycles that so easily develop in our relationships. If we show grace and love to those who sin against us, we'll make them wonder why we're dealing with them patiently and kindly. Jesus' forbearance toward those who insulted him, grieved him, and called out for his crucifixion bore much fruit. Many of these same people came to believe in him on the day of Pentecost. When they considered who Jesus was, what they had done, they were cut to the heart, and they repented of their sins. Christ's willingness to suffer and die resulted in the salvation of many. Our willingness to follow in Christ's footsteps by patiently enduring suffering can also be used by God to soften hard hearts, to call his chosen ones to repentance and life. Beloved, we began this sermon by speaking about Jonathan Edwards' sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards preached that sermon to an audience filled with many people who were apathetic about the Christian faith or who did not know Christ at all. He warned that their lives were in grave peril, that at any moment they could be plunged into hell forevermore. Edward's sermon warned of God's fiery wrath against all sinners who refuse to repent. 
And so now I want to ask you, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? If not, then you too are living under God's judgment and condemnation. John 3 verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Beloved, if you are a Christian, then with the church of all ages, you need to confess that Jesus Christ suffered and died for us. That he bore the wrath of God for our sins. That he suffered God's judgment for our sake. That he endured the agony of hell on our behalf. Yet, beloved, being a Christian involves more than that. We need to repent of our sins, to hate them and flee from them. We need to love God and to live in intimate fellowship with Him. The fruits of our faith need to be evident in our lives. We need to be willing to endure suffering as Christ did without repaying evil for evil. We need to show forth patience and kindness and goodness to each other. That, beloved, is how we can show forth our great thankfulness for all the suffering Christ endured for us. Amen.